What's going on, guys? Larry here. Um, just wanted to touch base with you guys. I know I'm supposed to be on baby break, but uh, I just could not leave you guys without something. So I hit up powerlifting coach John David Reynolds of California. We spoke a little bit today. I had a little bit of time uh, in the day to record the first of one, the first of two uh, podcast interviews with him. This one just gives a little bit of his background, uh, his thoughts on powerlifting, his methods, and uh, what a training philosophy should have uh, for coaches and individuals. So if you like this podcast, please let me know. Uh, hit us up on iTunes. I'm still trying to reclaim my spot on Spotify. But uh, guys, thank you for listening. And if this provided any value to you, please leave a review, leave a positive comment. Even if it's a negative comment, I definitely can take criticism on what I can do better. So please let me know. Thanks for listening, guys. Take care. Welcome, everybody, to the Tenacity Strength Fit for Duty podcast. I am Larry Brown. Uh, sorry, my co-host Vaughn Atene is still out saving the streets of Gotham City. Uh, apparently, the Joker got out. John Cena is back to the WWE, and uh, they disbanded the Suicide Squad, so he had to go and do all that things there because they're blowing up the Gotham left and right. But today, I have a special guest. Um, every guest is special, but this one, I've been wanting to actually put a microphone in his face for a little bit. Um He's a Facebook follow, Instagram follow, uh, a good cyber friend, if you will. Coach John David Reynolds. You've probably have seen his name uh, around powerlifting circles and some bodybuilding circles. He's expanded his reach out a little bit more. And he's an interesting fellow. I'm not going to give away his story totally because I think it's a story of perseverance. He's continuing to persevere through many things. And I think everyone can learn something from him. Um, I kind of pride myself on going out and finding people that most other podcasts don't talk to. Um, I don't think you need to have four letters by your name to know something. So without further ado, John, how are you today? Oh man, thank you for having me on. I'm doing pretty good. Good, good. Uh, um, first things first, you were recently in a car crash one of like you are a cat because this is like your second or third car crash bad car crash that i've seen you in um explain to people what happened to you okay um i was actually uh i went to pick up my passport and a couple of the materials for a trip that was going on the next morning and um it happened to be a little bit late and i went back up to my gym Grabbing, uh, grabbing everything, making sure everything was ready. Uh, you know, double checking stuff. But on the way back home, uh, this guy, or I'm assuming a guy, comes, he merges onto the freeway going like 40 miles an hour, 45 miles an hour. And I was on cruise control, I'm chilling, I'm, I'm pretty relaxed. And so like, I go around him. When I go around him, like within 20, 30 feet, all of a sudden, he takes off and comes roaring past me. And then, next thing I know, boom, he comes right in front of me, cuts me off, slams on the brakes, and brake checks me. I'm in a, I'm in a small car at the time, and I just tried to avoid it. As soon as I tried to avoid it, the car just started to flip and went rolling. Uh, 
So I think the car rolled about nine times. I suffered uh, multiple face fractures, um, a facial decompression nerve. I fractured my uh, temporal bone. Uh, so basically my injuries kind of looked like uh, Bell's palsy. Uh, so I had surgery uh, for facial decompression. And then like all, all the bones on like the left side of my face and to the back of my skull were damaged. So basically I couldn't even use my CPAP um, because like I can't have any extra pressure or air going into my head. Uh, right now, so far, it's been, that was on April 30th. The recovery has been pretty good. I feel pretty good. Um, I've actually been able to start lifting and doing some of my regular stuff again. Uh, I have, I know my next follow-up not isn't until September where we're going to see how much further the nerve has continued to progress in this healing process. So now it's just pretty much a waiting game. And like I said, this is your second or third um, bad car crash, but you, I, I, I want to get to those other ones in a minute. Um, we may or may not have time to touch on those, but what I'm really amazed about, about you is your story. Um, you are kind of the powerlifting version of The Rock. You left your home state with very little money, no money, and you went out to California with just, you know, this, this dream of, of coaching and just being involved knee deep in the powerlifting community. Tell us your background, your education, where you were raised at, why you left, because I think that's very important as well. And why powerlifting? Why but pour yourself into this endeavor um, that can leave bodies riddled on the ground. All right, so my, um, my journey into, what brought me to California? First, I'm originally from Mobile, Alabama, but uh, when I came to, but I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, when I was, what, about 18 years old, I got pulled over by the police. Um, I was in the Cadillac and it was it was decked out. It was my dream car, it was the car I wanted. And I pretty much had just bought rims, everything. The car, I was in the process of modifying some more stuff. But anyways, I got pulled over and my car got ripped apart. Uh, they were searching for drugs and a gun. Uh, so, of course, I didn't have any. I was working 60 hours a week. Uh, I worked I worked every day from pretty much from freshman year of high school up until I graduated. But anyways, after they tore my car apart, I just said, okay, fine, I'm out. Um, I got rid of the car. I bought a bus ticket. I left. Um, I had already been into MMA, fighting, and boxing. I'd wrestled since I was in eighth grade. And so what ended up happening was uh, I went, traveled around, fighting, training, competing. And um, then I went out to the Marine Corps for a little bit. Wasn't something I wanted to do for a long time. So the next thing you know, I found myself, uh, I came back home, spent some time with my mom. She had a stroke. I took care of her for a little while. Then I got up, I had 20, I had 25 bucks in my pocket. My friend from the Marine Corps, he was like, hey, where you want to go? I'll buy you a ticket. So he bought me a ticket to Sacramento, California. Uh, I got on the bus. I was told to have another buddy that was going to 
um, give me a place to stay, but that had fell through when I got here. Um, when I got here, I ended up like homeless. I uh, went the first place to stay. So I, I stayed in the Sacramento Greyhound station the first two nights. And then um, then it was a porta potty and then uh, the attic of a grocery store and then a trailer on a construction site because the foreman actually also was in the Marine Corps and he let me stay there. And then eventually I was able to get a job uh, working as a lot porter, lot porter to Target. Target, I started training and coaching clients. Um, I, I got the rest of my certifications, finished that up. And I started training clients uh, at a local MMA gym. I was also training and competing. Um, and then like, so my first couple of clients were all fighters, um, fighters and tennis players, which is kind of weird, and a couple of models. And I had always been obsessed with strength. Uh, my first time I started, when I first started training, it was based off uh, Ed Cohn's workouts that he put in Flex Magazine, I think in like 97. Um, and so that was actually what started it. But I always knew I wanted to train to be a coach. Uh, I started when, like when I was 12, I bought my first uh, personal training books. Um, it's always been something I wanted to do. Um, you're cutting out on me. Wait, Let's see. It's starting to clear up. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, where was I? Uh, personal training books, follow bad cones, routine out of flex. Cool. So, yeah, like I said, I had I got a couple of, you know, personal training books, anatomy books, um, you know, and then Charles Poloquin, uh, big deal, because, like, he was in all the magazines with all his little tips. Uh, so it was just one thing after another. So when I, so it was just always something I wanted to do. So my first couple of clients were fighters, models. I had a couple of tennis players. Um, it was it was just for fun, you know. And um, slowly, so I always tell everybody the story. I went and worked at Twenty Four Hour Fitness for one shift for like four hours, if that. <laughs> um, I was like, nope, can't do this. I walked back out. I, I never even cashed that check they sent me in the mail. I had walked back out and um, I had put in the ad in Craigslist and I started taking clients. And then I had got in connection with this MMA gym, downtown Sacramento. And I started, and I, it went, it was just up from there. And so that was 2008 and I worked for myself ever since. That is, that is crazy. So why California? Did being out in the Marine Corps, did that, shape you as to wanting to live out there or is it just because you came along at an interesting time when raw powerlifting was just really starting to take hold or at least starting to uh bubble up in the ranks did being in the marine corps and actually uh at one point being out in california i assume did that help shape your decision to move out there yep actually it was it was pretty much 90 percent of it Sacramento was because of a girl, as usual, like everybody else. But uh, California was because of the Marine Corps. Um, I have found a place that I can feel at home at. Um, you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. 
but yeah, it was like, you know, I, I mean, I'm a country boy at heart. I, I still like biscuits and gravy every day and I eat my crits. But uh, I, it was like, I found a place where I felt comfortable being me. Um, and so, and then plus, like everybody always complains about it, it being expensive, but I've hustled my whole life. I'm like, to me, the rule is, if I need more money, just go make some. Uh, and so I just adjust it. Um, the other crazy part of it was, uh, at the time, I was really more focused in just fighting and fight culture. So I had a lot of friends in the area that fought, and I just got to hang out with them, go have fun. So that was the other big part of it. I'm still here. I can hear you. Okay. Um, yeah. And then it was kind of, so actually fighting led to powerlifting because I got, I was training one day and I hurt my knee. I dislocated my knee in training and I was like, crap. And I, I was pretty much just like sick of being under 200 pounds. Um, I pretty much kept my weight down for fighting and, you know, to be people sparring partners at different weight classes. Um, so because I was like, I walk around about 185, 190, but I fought at like 170, 175, depending on if it was boxing or MMA. Mm -hmm. And then, um, but I never let my weight go too crazy because like I was still fighting. And then after that knee injury, I said, screw it. Let's see how big I can get. And then it was just all just gaining weight from there. And uh, I went and I did a powerlifting competition. And then actually Boss of Bosses 2, that was that was it for me um because i love fighting i love competing i like that's my favorite part of anything powerlifting training is not fun and exciting no it's but actually relatively boring it's yes it's extremely boring i i much i love bodybuilding way more but uh i was like okay um at boss of bosses too um it came down to dan and uh Jeremy Hamilton at the end of the at the end of the meet. And Dan was like, it was, it was, it was Dan won based off his wilts. But Dan said, nah, I want it straight out. And he had, he said, so he had called for enough weight to beat Jeremy straight out. No wilts, no nothing. I told him. That was the goal. Dan missed the missed his third attempt, but the whole room was going crazy. And I was just sitting up there and I was like, that's the dopest thing I've ever seen without somebody getting punched in the face. And that was it for me. <laughs> that's not, that's, that's pretty impressive. You know, and it, you mentioned boss of bosses. It's crazy. Cause at one point you heard boss of bosses is the premier raw meat. And then uh, before that, I believe it was Reebok record breakers. And now you have a lot of these other, uh, you have a lot of these other meats that are like perennial um, raw meats. What made you dive uh, deeper into training for power lifter, training power lifters rather than just coaching and being dominating yourself? Um, so for me, it was an accident, like most of the things in my life. Uh, so I had this girl, <clears throat> she came to me and she said, Hey, I want you to train. I said, no, she said, I want you to train me. I said, no. And then so one day she literally, 
So one day I was sitting up there and I need to actually, I was trying to go faster. And so she said, hey, I want you, I said, you know what? On Wednesday, I'm squatting, come in. I said, if you miss a workout, I'm not training. So she came in and she worked out with me the whole workout. She put my weights on. I trained her. She just kept, she kept up. And after that end of the month, I told her, I said, I was like, I still didn't want to coach anybody. When I looked at her and I said, fine, here, look, give me a hundred bucks. Don't miss a workout. And so after a couple of months, the next thing I know, like two or three other people started asking me and I'm like, God, no. And then it was like, okay, fine. I was like, sure, it pays my bills, you know, and it allows me to keep training. And that's pretty much where it happened. That's how it started. Uh, people just wanted to come and jump in on my workout sessions. And I ended up finding myself coaching more people uh, for powerlifting than I was for other things. Interesting. So let's dive into training philosophy a bit. A lot of people that are involved in bodybuilding and powerlifting, they have training ideas, but they don't have a philosophy. And Dave, and, uh, Dave Tate has spoken about having a training philosophy before. What's yours? And what do you guide your lifters by? So I'm, I'm a big believer. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Dave Tate, but I'm also a big believer in that. Uh, it should be a, a or... Uh, I go to Greg Penor to coach me. He says it's a mythology. You have to have a method. What is it that makes it different and that makes it so that everybody could train and get success, even if it's a 500-pound squatter or a guy that can barely hit 135? So for me, I believe in the base, one base. First rule of all training, get stronger. So with everything that I do, um, I do a lot of training up into three tiers. The foundation, foundation is built up on building muscle. Muscle moves weight. I look at all of the training uh, the same way. Like I said, when I got started, I got started based off bodybuilding. That's what I love to do. Um, so the foundation is hypertrophy and building muscle. But also with hypertrophy, I look at mobility. Um, before, as you go through different mobilization exercises or different things, it's trying to be as strong as possible through a full range of motion. The second thing I look at is teaching people how to apply strength. So at that phase, I look at it as, hey, how do you train heavy? And getting that mentality, that mindset into what you're doing. And then the last one is going to be like intention. What's the intention of what you're doing? Um, because to me, a lot of times power is just practice intentions. If you, by the time you get to a, cause like the truth is you're always preparing for a powerlifting meet. You're always preparing for a bodybuilding show. That little, that, the, the little portion at which you're trying to peak for a meet or trying to get that right, the peak conditioning for your show. That's all about the intention that you put into what you're doing. So that's pretty much how I teach it. Uh, build muscle, be strong as possible, and put as much intention and force into what you're doing. Um, I actually divided it up into a simple uh, acronym that I call just the lift. Leverage, leverage, intense, intentions, formulation, 
and then train. Because like if you go through, it's gonna be tracking and training. So that's what lifting is. Like if you can find what your leverage point is, leverage could actually be what's the goal? What are you trying to do? Intention is what you're trying to do in application. What's the what's gonna actually tell you that you're being successful? The formula is putting a plan together that's gonna make those things possible. And then you track it to see if you were successful. Did what you want happen? If it didn't, change it. And then I repeat that process over and over again. <laughs> so have, have you ever listened to my, did you listen to my interview with Jason Colley? Yeah. Okay. So when you were talking a lot of what you described, at least is at least training for power development is, is very similar. So you guys kind of strike a chord. It'd be interesting to see a training talk between you two. Um, but I digress. So what does a, we're talking straight out the gate, new power lifter. What are some things they need to realize when they're, when they come to you and say, Hey, I want to do a meet because I feel that social media, especially in the powerlifting and bodybuilding atmospheres, it's been made to make it where competing is a rite of passage, right? And it's not. Um, what are some of the things that beginning powerlifters need to keep in mind when they say to you, hey, I want to do this meet? So honestly, I tell everybody, if you come to me and you say, if that's the only thing that you want to do, I'll tell you, just do the meet. Don't be, don't worry about it. Just go do it. Uh, um, but if you now tell me you're sitting up there, I, I look at it this way. If you're looking to compete in powerlifting, there's two types of people. There's the people that go in and they just want to do it. They just want to go have fun. Go have fun. Honestly, like you could keep your training the same year round, go through it and just get a little bit strong. Get 5% better every four to six months and compete. But if you want to sit up there and you say, hey, I want to be really good at this, all right, you probably want to hit me up. Because if you want something, but like, again, a lot of my clients don't even compete. <laughs> That's the funny thing. I have, I have almost 80% of my clients are women. I have out of 80% of my clients, probably my whole business is online. Even after all of that, I have mostly, most of my clients are trainers or coaches. Most of my clients are professional people. If they're not trainers or coaches, they're like doctors, lawyers, or in some like position where they look for control. They look for something that can be stable, structured, and consistent. Because that's what I believe in. Like I put in the system that's stable, structured, consistent. That's always going to deliver a positive outcome. That's what I look for. Now, if you're looking to just go out and compete, doesn't matter. Quite frankly, there's there's no, you could do that for free. You could look at any free program online. If you actually want to be great at it, you want to be the greatest possible version of yourself, yeah, you probably want to talk to me. Or find somebody with my similar mindset. Because like, really, that's really the difference between getting a powerlifting coach and not getting a powerlifting coach. If you decide that you want to be coachable and actually look to strive to be the best version of yourself, then hey, get a coach. You touched on something that I want to talk about being coachable. Um, we're in a, in a landscape now 
where a lot of people don't want to be coachable in their chosen sport and in their personal personal life. How can people get to be more coachable if they aren't right now? So that, that's kind of funny uh, with the NBA playoffs right now, I was watching and I was listening to a lot of interviews. And one thing that keeps coming up, they keep looking at the different mindset between the Phoenix Suns and the Bucks. But what I'm finding that's very interesting is that when it comes to being coachable, the first thing you have to do is humble yourself and recognize that you are looking to improve. If, if it's not the job of them to do the work for you, the job is you saying, hey, I want to be better. If you want to be better, you need to sit there. That first step, you already said, I want to be better. Now, if you recognize that, recognize that the person that you're going to, they are giving you a roadmap to follow in order for you to get better. You're, as a pupil, as a student, you should be looking to go through that roadmap, identify what helps you, identify what doesn't help you. And then once you're able to do that, then you can say, hey, you should, if it's a good coach, they're going to have a conversation with you. They're going to be able to communicate with you to get you to get the, to see that extra insight to getting better. But the first thing that you're going to have to do is decide that, hey, I'm humbling myself to ask this person to give me the knowledge, give me the, uh, give me the GPS coordinates to where I'm trying to go. The moment you realize that, hey, they're actually putting the coordinates in my phone to tell me, turn left, turn right, turn. Hey, they're trying to get you to your destination. See what that destination looks like. See what that journey looks like. That's it. Here's another question. What are people doing to make themselves not coachable? Because I feel that a lot of people are sabotaging themselves, like getting a coach is a badge of honor, right? Again, yeah. like competing is a, is a rite of passage when it's not. Um, why yeah, are I know. People, why are people looking at this as more of a service in a relationship? You know what? What's funny? I was actually at the meet I was at in Santa Cruz. Me and one of the guys were talking about this, where people were sitting up there, and whoever their coach was was like the bigger deal than their actual performance, or they were like you know. Uh, and then now with social media, what's crazy to me is people will go and they'll watch a video or watch a, or, or, or see like a meme or a graphic. And that piece of information now supersedes all information and insight into their training philosophy or their training idea. And now they want to try to like, you know, it's one thing to look out of the window of the train and say, oh, hey, I see a monument over there. And it's another thing to decide that you're going to jump out the window and go chase that. You're not going to get to your destination now, you know? Um, and to me, a lot of times what it is are people are losing focus on what the destination is they're trying to get to. They're not sitting up there. And I think it's a really, it's really important uh, to sit and journal what you're training, to have some, to have some markers. Like I said, tracking is very important. 
Because like, if you're not tracking your guessing, you don't know where you're going, you don't know where you've been, you don't know what, what didn't happen. Where a lot of people are missing it is that they are losing track of, they're losing track of what they're actually doing that's gonna make them successful in the long run. And they wanna get distracted by something else. But uh, I saw this one post uh, yesterday where they were talking about, uh, they're talking about training, blah, blah, blah. And then it's like in plain English, literally he says, it's like, you can go look at any really great coach. I don't care what sport it is, or if you're just gonna look at strength sports, it's gonna come down to, yeah, they know all these complex techniques or whatever. However, they don't use all those. They got these three to four of them that they're sitting up here. These are the ones we believe in. And they will ride them out. And, then, and if you really look at it, the craziest part about it, none of those techniques are very different from each other. <laughs> it, it's all quite similar. And it's just a matter of, they sit up there and say, hey, look, we're going to do this. Let's do this for 16 weeks. Let's do this for the next three years, whatever. And then all of a sudden, boom, they win championships. Phil Jackson is known for the triangle offense. He did not go around changing that up. <laughs> it's 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 funny because I when I was in powerlifting I self coached right I shouldn't really say self coach everything I learned I learned from a program that I bought and I the pre the prominent programs that I ran was two the cube method and five three one I used five three one for my first couple of meets cube method to finish it off and that was it. And got got decent, got to a 600-pound squat, 633 deadlift, you know, not, nothing to really be impressed about these days. But why do you think that that coaching is put on such a pedestal when people more than likely just need to work hard or do their research a little bit more? You know what? Again, that, that again, a coach is there for accountability. Most people, they don't want to take accountability. They don't want to take ownership for what they're doing. You pay a coach to sit up there, look at you and say, hey, you're bullshitting. Right now, you're wasting my time. And most of the time, most people, that's really what they're paying for. Uh, I, as a matter of fact, whenever anybody sends me a message asking me what does the program look like, I generally will respond with what my rates are and I'll say, hey, ask me an actual question. Because ask me what the program looks like or what that looks like. Most of the time, those people, it doesn't matter what I say, give them a free program. I could give them whatever. They're not gonna follow it. However, if I ask them to ask me a question about getting to a specific location, a specific goal, or a specific thing that they have in mind, those people, anytime I get them to look at what they're, where they're trying to go, they will follow that program. Most people, what they really want is to be able to get to a destination. They're, they're saying, hey, I want to add 10 pounds to my squat. I want to add 30 pounds to my squat. I want to add 15 pounds to my bench press. I can't get my, I can't get the squat to death. I can't, if I can give you that destination, that's what they're paying for. Most people turn to coaching 
to be able to get to those things. Oftentimes now with the, the way things are is they're looking at top lifters and they're looking at who their coach is and they're thinking, hey, that coach could got so-and-so to that number. I want to get to that number. Or I want to get a part of that number. So they see the number and they're chasing that number or they're chasing, and in some cases, like in bodybuilding, they're chasing that physique. It's always, you know, it's really the real question that you should ask that coaches who actually make money are doing this. Like I said, I've, done, I've been online for 10 years, over 10 years. All my clients come to me for one question. And usually it's their question. It's not just one simple question. It's their question. They're one question. Hey, I, wanna, I want to get down 20 pounds to get in this dress. I want to add 15 pounds to my total. I want to be a better powerlifter. I want to get on stage for a bodybuilding show. I want whatever it is. They have one question they want me to answer. I just have to give them a roadmap. And then I hold them accountable to staying on task, to staying on target, to get them where they want to go.